So, what is unique about Joel? Joel gives us God's perspective on complex biblical issues like judgment and repentance. Now, if you're like me, when you hear the word judgment, the first thing that comes to your mind may be sort of a negative connotation. And I totally understand that. Again, that's kind of how I think as well. I think we get some of that idea from our culture. And then you look at the word repentance. Um, It's sort of a churchy word, maybe a religious word, uh, maybe a strange word. But Joel does deal with God's perspective on these issues. So, you know, not the culture's perspective, but what the scriptures say, what the truth of God says. And so we are going to read Joel 1, 1 through 15. So just the first part here, because again, it's uh, three chapters. Not going to read the whole thing. But I do want to encourage you, as we read Joel's words, to remember that he was a prophet speaking to the people of Judah after a terrible disaster. So we're going to get into what that disaster was, what that crisis was, what the people of Judah were going through at the time. And as we read, just remember this is God's word. The Lord gave this message to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you leaders of the people. Listen, all who live in the land. In all your history, has anything like this happened before? Tell your children about it in the years to come. And let your children tell their children. Pass the story down from generation to generation. After the cutting locusts finished eating the crops, the swarming locusts took what was left. And then after them came hopping locusts too. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you wine drinkers. All the grapes are ruined, and all your sweet wine is gone. A vast army of locusts has invaded my land, a terrible army too numerous to count. Its teeth are like lion's teeth, and its veins are like those of a lioness. It has destroyed my grapevines and ruined my fig trees, stripping their bark and destroying it, leaving the branches white and bare. Weep like a bride dressed in black, mourning the death of her husband, for there's no grain or no wine to offer at the temple of the Lord. So the priests are in mourning. The ministers of the Lord are weeping. The fields are ruined. The land is stripped bare. The grain is destroyed. The grapes have shriveled and the olive oil is gone. Despair, all you farmers. Wail, all you vine growers. Weep, because the wheat and barley, all the crops of the field, are ruined. The grapevines have dried up and the fig trees have withered. The pomegranate palm and apple trees, all the fruit trees have dried up. And the people's joy has dried up with them. Dress yourselves in burlap and weep, you priests. Wail, you who serve before the altar. Come, spend the night in burlap, you ministers of my God. For there is no grain or wine to offer at the temple of your your God. Announce a time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Bring the leaders and all the people of the land into the temple of the Lord your God and cry out to Him there. The day of the Lord is near, and when the day of destruction comes from the Almighty, how terrible that day will be. So, I know that was a lot. But Joel deals with a tension that many unbelievers still deal with today. It reminds me of a story. Um, I knew this guy, Elliot. And Elliot and I became really good friends. I met Elliot when I was at uh, some National Guard training that I did. And I became really good friends with Elliot. Now, Elliot, as we got to know each other, he told me he was an agnostic. So not an atheist, an agnostic. So he believed that there could be a God, but he didn't know for sure. And Elliot and I, as we got to know each other better, uh, he would give me haircuts before drill weekend so I would have save some money and, 
and get my hair cut. And sometimes during those haircuts, conversations about God and faith and politics would come up. And one of the questions he always had was sort of this tension that Joel is pulling at, and that is, why do bad things happen? Why does our world have evil in it at all? If God is good, as Elliot would say, then why does he allow these things to happen? And maybe that's sort of the question that you have had or someone in your life has had before. Another question that came to mind as I was looking through here is, what does God call us to do with our sin? Not just us as a church, but maybe us individually. I think it's an important question to ask. So in this first verse, I highlighted the word all because uh, Joel is emphasizing who he's speaking to. So in any email that you write, any email you receive, you have to go up in the top left corner and and type who you're going to send it to. Maybe you do a CC to the whole company. Maybe you just individualize one person and send it to them. But as Joel is telling people what he's going to talk about, he's, he's saying, hear this, listen, everybody. So everyone in Judah, listen to what I have to say. And then he asks this rhetorical question, in all your history, has anything like this happened before? So obviously they didn't have Facebook back in the time of ancient Judah. But maybe he was asking them, look back and just look through your history books. Look at the, the textbooks if you have those, the scribes. Look back, see, has, has anything like this ever happened before in your history? Tell your children about it in the years to come. Pass the story down from generation to generation. Um, I think that human beings have a tendency to tell stories. I think we, we tend to memorialize the triumphs of our lives and the tragedies of our lives. So the good things and the bad things. This reminds me of uh, my mamma Moore. She lives in White Mills, Kentucky. It's a very rural place in, in the middle of, of Kentucky. And every time it snows, Mamma always tells this story. And she tells it every time, without fail. And the story she tells is of, uh, there was an 18-inch blizzard that came in, like, in the 70s. So my uncle and my dad, they were snowed in. And they couldn't go to school for six weeks. So that's a long time, six weeks. They couldn't go to school. And she, every time she tells it, she always tells it. She wrapped chains around her little pinto car just to get from one end of the driveway to the next because the snow was so heavy. But I think that's how we are as human beings. We remember stories of tragedy and triumph. And so Joel is telling Judah, he's like, listen, what I'm about to tell you, what's going on right now, I want you to tell your kids, and I want your kids to tell their kids. Then verse 4, after the cutting locusts finished eating the crops, the swarming locusts took what was left. After them, the hopping locusts and the stripping locusts too. So if you're like me, you're wondering why is he, you know, giving descriptions of these different types of locusts. And I think it's kind of hard for us to understand because we think of uh, locusts as being such an ancient world problem. But actually, uh, I did a little research. This was a university article by Harvard, the Harvard Gazette. And this guy, Dino Martins, he was the Harvard researcher on this. And 2022, sorry, excuse me, 2020, there's a study done about a locust plague in East Africa. The reason I mention this is because it kind of uh, modernizes this problem. Locusts are still a problem. So he said this in the article. A plague of locusts has descended on East Africa, devouring crops, trees, and pasture as they move. Swarms can vary a lot in size. They can be as big as a football field covering many square miles. Historically, one of the largest swarms ever recorded was in Kenya, which covered 10,000 square kilometers. So locusts are still a problem today, even though, you know, in our modern 
world. Uh, we don't think of it as being a problem, but it is. In verse 5, uh, Joel is, is now addressing sort of the problems of the day. He's talking to specific people. He says, uh, wake up, you drunkards, and weep and wail. One of the things that stands out to me is the language that Joel uses. It's not necessarily politically correct, if you, if you know what I mean. He's, he's not trying to please his audience. As Mark mentioned last week, a lot of times prophets had harsh messages to say. He says, weep and wail. He's, it's like he's blowing an air horn to maybe the people in that time who were given over to too much alcohol, to drunkenness, to too much wine. He's telling them to, to weep and to grieve. But how could God say this? Isn't this unloving? Maybe that's a question that you've thought before. How could God you know, allow this plague to come to Judah? Or how could God send this plague to come if He is so loving, if He is so kind? One of the things that I think we have to realize is that all land in general belongs to God. So your backyard, my backyard... The crops that we have, everything in, on the earth in our lands belongs to God. And Judah was being a steward of that land. They obviously weren't a great steward of that land. And so God has the ability, He has the authority to send punishments, to send afflictions, like a father sometimes has to discipline their kids. And so I think we have to kind of step back and realize that maybe this isn't unloving of God. Maybe this is actually an act of mercy, an act of grace. And we'll get into that in just a second. But I I want you to see here the uh, description that Joel gives of what's going on. He compares the locusts to a vast army. So I don't know if you've seen uh, any movies that have shown a battle scene where you just see tons of people piling over the hills, riding horses, the cavalry, all, all things like that. But that's the image I get when I think of a vast army. But I think the emotion here is uh, one of being overwhelmed. If you think about yourself being back in ancient Judah, being swarmed by all these locusts, one of the things on your mind, you think maybe it's like an army, but one of the things on your mind might have been, are they going to destroy the crops? Are they going to destroy the wine, the food that we have, that we've tried to work so hard to prepare? What is going to happen to my family when this happens? I see all these locusts swarming around. Where are my kids? Where are they at right now? What about my friend who's working in the field? What's going to happen to him? And then this comparison, uh, it says, its teeth are like lion's teeth and its fangs like those of a lioness. So these were lethal locusts. Then verse 8, Joel gives this solemn warning here and this solemn charge. He says, the weep like a bride dressed in black, mourning the death of her husband. I can't imagine when I was engaged to Sarah Beth if something had happened to her and she had passed away. I can't imagine the amount of grief I would feel. But that's the imagery here that we're getting here that Joel is telling Judah. The emotion that they should have, they should be mourning. They should be grieving in their hearts. And if you follow uh, the ancient uh, history of people wearing clothes, one of the things that they, they did is they wore black when it was a time of mourning or a time of grieving. Not something we necessarily do today. Some people may still do it, but it was very important back then in that culture. Weep like a dry, uh, excuse me, bride dressed in black. 
So question, what does God call us to do with our sin? I think one thing is clear is that he calls us to have real contrition over our sin. To grieve our sin like a widow would grieve her husband. It's easier said than done. But Psalm 51 is a psalm written by King David. And he wrote it shortly after he committed adultery. So he was in power. He was in a position of authority. And he fell. He had a moral failure in his life. And then in Psalm 51, that is his act of repentance. His act of contrition that he's writing down. And I don't know how it worked. Maybe David himself actually wrote it. Or maybe he had somebody writing it. But I imagine David writing Psalm 51. He's pouring out his heart before God. He's saying, God, purge me with hyssop. Make me clean. Forgive me of this sin. Because that sin that he committed was weighing heavy on his conscience. God wants us to have real contrition in our hearts. If we really love Jesus, we will have sensitive consciences. So those of you who have followed Christ for a long time in your life know this to be true. If we tell a lie, even if it's a white lie, the Holy Spirit convicts us. If we gossip when we know we shouldn't be gossiping, the Holy Spirit convicts us. If we say or do something we know we shouldn't do, if enough time goes by, the Holy Spirit will get a hold of you. And then in order to be clean in your relationship with God, you you have to confess it. And that's something we have to do as Christians. Uh, You look in Scripture in the New Testament. I want to give you an example of this uh, with uh, two individuals. Peter and Judas. So, two very popular uh, people in the Bible. Peter is known for many things, and Judas is known for the one thing that he did wrong that basically ruined his life. But you look at Peter and Judas, both disciples of Jesus for about three years, and they both betrayed him. Peter betrayed Jesus before a crowd. He denied him three times, something that we say we would never do, but Peter did. And then Judas, of course, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss, turning him over to the the high priests and the guards for money. But if you look at what happens after they both betrayed Jesus, you're going to see who really loved Jesus and who pretentiously loved Jesus. Because you look at the story of Judas, and Judas gave actually gave the money back because he was guilty. But then he killed himself. He was overcome with grief and guilt. But it was never resolved. He thought the only thing he could do was to take his life into his own hands to get rid of that guilt. But if you look at the story of Peter, it says that Peter cried. Whenever Peter Peter realized that he had betrayed uh, Jesus, he cried. And the worst thing in the world in his mind was to let Jesus down. And Jesus forgave him. And Jesus restored Peter. He said, you know what, Peter? I'm going to give you the keys to the church. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. And then he charges Peter. He says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus restores Peter. But we see between Judas and Peter who really loved Jesus. Peter's conscience was convicted. Verse 9, it says, there's no grain or wine to offer at the temple of the Lord. Now, when I first read over that, I didn't really see a whole lot there. But one thing I kind of dug a little bit deeper on is that in Exodus 29, basically God uh, issued out this this way for the priests to uh, meet in the temple with God and give sacrifices and give offerings. 
And one of the ways that they would do that was with grain and with wine and with oil. So there were certain elements, uh, agricultural elements, that they actually had to have in order to make these sacrifices in the temple. And because of this locust disaster that came in, the locusts destroyed the wine and the grain. And so these priests, not only are they out of a job now, but they're cut off from their relationship with God. They're cut off from the temple. So the priests in Judah were experiencing separation and communion from God. Now, I don't know about you all, but I'm a teacher, so I had a a decent amount of time off during Christmas break. That was awesome. I really enjoyed it. But one thing I didn't enjoy was that first three days. Because the first three days of that break, I got off my routine. I got off my schedule that I was used to. And one of the things that was in my routine is that drive I had from my apartment to my school. It was about 30 minutes. And that time, I could summarize that time for you in one word, and that would be communion. And that time was really important for me. Because as I would go into, on my way to school, I would listen to music. Sometimes I would pray. And it just was a time for me to get close to God. But then Christmas break comes and things get disrupted and I didn't have that. I don't know for you what it is. I know some people here, uh, they feel closest to God on a treadmill. Some people here, maybe it's, it's on the lawnmower, the shower. Maybe it's late at night when you put the kids down and you finally get some, some relief from the crying and the screaming. And you pull out your Bible study and you get to read it and you feel close to God. But Christians need that time, that communion with God. And the priests in Judah, they were cut off from that. It says the grapevines have dried up and the fig trees have withered. The pomegranate, palm, and apple trees, all the fruit trees have dried up. And then the people's joy has dried up with them. So I'm not sure why, but when I think of this this image of the trees being dried up, there's one image that kind of comes to mind for me. I just imagine this little boy... Uh, in his house going to the same tree that he would always go to to pick fruit. And maybe a week or so after this happens, the locusts have eaten all the fruit. All the fruit is dried up. The little boy walks outside. He goes to that tree he always goes to to get an apple tree, to get an apple, and he goes and it's dried up. And that image of a fruit being dried up, you know, something that at one point in your life was so uh, refreshing, so juicy, uh, so nourishing to you, that you look forward to eating, is now shriveled up and, and dried up and dead. And I think in, in my mind, the way I was thinking about this is, you know, the nation of Judah is essentially like that, that, that grapefruit or that, that apple. It's without God. They've walked away from God. They've started to worship other gods. As Mark said in Hosea, uh, the nation of Israel was kind of like a whore. It had turned against God, its husband, and been unfaithful. And the same is true for Judah. As you saw in the video, Joel never specifically mentions what sin uh, Judah was convicted of. But we know they were walking away from God. But I also think this image of being dried up can be uh, telling not only of a nation, but of a person. All of us in here, we're Christians. We're tied to Christ. And there's an image in, uh, in John that talks about Jesus being the vine and us being the branches and us being connected to Jesus. And it's like, if, if you're not in that communion with Christ, it's like you're cut off from the vine. You're dried up 
And a heart without Christ is a heart that is shriveled up and drying up. And it's a scary thought to think about. So what do we do if our sin has led us into spiritual dehydration? Maybe, maybe you've had so much victory in your life over sin for, for a long time. And then something comes in your life, something recently has come into your life where it's, it's, a, it's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual sense of trying to choose the right thing over the wrong thing. But maybe the circumstances in your life have made it a lot harder recently. And sin seems a lot more enticing. And that relationship with God that once seemed so uh, vibrant and fresh has seemed to dry up. So what do we do in that situation? Well, Joel gives a charge here. He says, weep you priests, announce a time of fasting, and cry out to him there. That phrase, weep you priests, it reminds me of uh, my friend Garrett Hatfield. He's in the Marines now. But when we were little kids, I, I spent a lot of time at his house. And uh, he lived in Grayson County, Kentucky. It's about 45 minutes from here. But it was a really, I, I went to church with him one time. It was a really old uh, country Baptist church. They were having a revival service. And at the time, I wasn't a Christian. And the one thing that I remember them doing was crying, weeping. They were having a revival service. There were people just like this in seats, but they were like on their knees. They were singing and crying out. They had an altar at the front. And there was a few people that were coming up and getting saved. I didn't know what that meant. And there was a few people that were asking me, do you want to get saved? Do you want to come up? And I just said, uh, no, <laughs> I don't know what that is. Leave me alone. But looking back on that now, I realized, you know, they, they were crying out to God. And sometimes I think, I know I did, I kind of judged them a little bit as a non-Christian. I was like, that looks really silly. It looks like a bunch of hysteria. They're just crying out. But... The thing is, God knows the difference between real tears and fake tears. He knows the difference between somebody who's genuinely calling out to him and somebody who's faking it. He says to announce a time of fasting and to cry out to him there. Such an important part of our life. But I, I wanted to ask this question to you and, and to me as well. How often in our lives do we cry out to God? I think a lot of times we're, we're really quick to maybe read a portion of scripture or listen to a song or maybe watch something on TV if, if something's going wrong in our lives. But how often do we take that time to voice that in prayer and, and cry out to God? Because I think he really does want to hear from us. In fact, I know he does want to hear from his children. Maybe you're, you're sitting here and I can hear that voice of my friend Elliot how can God forgive such sinners? If the Bible describes people the way that they really are, which is fallen and sinning for a holy God. And if God is perfect like we say He is, which He is, then how can He forgive such sinners? Well, there's a few stories that Jesus tells. They're called parables. And there's one set of parables that kind of is strung together in a series of one, two, and three and they all have the same theme that kind of answered this question. And I'm sure you've heard of them before. But the first one is, it's a story of a girl who has this, this coin and she loses the coin. And it's not a coin of a ton of value, but she does lose the coin. And it says she tears her entire apartment, or not her apartment, tears her entire place up looking for that coin. She does whatever she can to find the coin. 
Then the second story is the story of a, a shepherd. The shepherd has a hundred sheep. And one sheep goes astray. And that shepherd leaves the 100 sheep to find the one sheep to save it from the wolves or maybe from falling in a ditch. And the shepherd does it because he loves that one sheep. The woman tries to find the coin because she loves that coin. But then the third parable Jesus tells, and this is maybe one of his most famous, but this is sort of the end-all, be-all of that teaching of how can God forgive sinners. Jesus tells this parable of the prodigal son. And at the end... The prodigal son, he comes home and the father sees him as he's walking up on the hill. And it says the father runs out and kisses him. And we got to realize this son had betrayed the father. This son had asked for his inheritance early, which was basically the equivalent of him saying, I don't like you so much. I want you to die and I want you to give me your money. And then he squandered the money. He lived a life of debauchery filth and he became he was eating like a pauper eating from troughs where the pigs ate but his father welcomed him and gave him a kiss so how can God forgive such sinners how is this something that's even possible I think the message of Joel is is very um, sobering and it's a good reminder and that is that God is holy he's perfect but he's also full of love and he's full of mercy but the message of Joel is sobering as well because at the same time we have this, we have this option for forgiveness of sin. We, have, we can be forgiven and cleansed of our sins through Christ. But if we reject that gift, the, the judgment will be even greater on us than the people of Judah. So we look at this story of the locust being sent to Judah. But if we reject Christ, the judgment for us will be far greater. Verse 15, that last verse in the verses we read, says how terrible that day will be. Talking about the day of the Lord or this day of judgment. But I think that Joel was kind of just setting the stage, if you will, for uh, the final prophet that would come later on. The prophet Jesus Christ, the final prophet. So Joel says how terrible that day will be, but listen to a few verses um, that Jesus said. See if you can see the similarities between what Jesus said and what Joel said. This is Matthew 4, 17. Right before Jesus went to preach the Sermon on the Mount, He said this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then in Luke 5, 32, Jesus said this, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then Luke 13, 5, he says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So Jesus, echoing the same refrain of the prophets, the same refrain of Joel. And that is, uh, leads us to this. Only those that turn back to God experience the full blessing of God. The people of Judah, if you look at the rest of the book of Joel, which we don't have time to look at today, but if you look at it, God hears the prayers of His people. People go to the temple. They go and they, they cry out to God. And God hears them. It says He became jealous for His people. God heard their prayers. And then in Joel 2, 21-24, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But God stops the locusts and He reverses the curse and He sends blessing. It says, Surely the Lord has done great things. Don't be afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. 
For the Lord has done great things. The trees will again be filled with fruit. Fig trees and grapevines will be loaded down once more. Rejoice in the Lord your God. For the rain He sends demonstrates His faithfulness. So people in Judah turned back to God. And God heard that and He blessed them. But then, leads us to this question here. Who can endure the judgment of God? Is there anyone that can endure the judgment of God? Verse 14, Announce the time of fasting. Call the people together for a solemn meeting. Bring the leaders and all the people of the land into the temple of the Lord your God and cry out to Him there. So, we look at this phrase, cry out to Him there. And it, it makes me think of the fact that in ancient Judah, they had to go to a temple. And they had to make sacrifices and offer certain things in order for them to commune with God. They had to go to a temple. It says, bring the leaders and all the people into the temple and cry out to Him there. But you and I, we don't have to do that. We don't have to go to a temple. The reason is because Jesus endured the full measure of God's wrath. So if you think, you know, you think back to Judah, you think about that army of locusts swarming around, eating all the crops, destroying that as a symbol of the future judgment. But Jesus, when he was on the cross, God's wrath was coming down on him. You know, Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. If you trace back his lineage, God's wrath was coming down on him. And, you know, you think about Jesus being on the cross, he endured physical pain. He was cut off. From God, He said, God, why have you forsaken me? And He did that for you and me. He did that for us. And so it's up to us to choose today and every day of the week if we're going to turn back to God, if we're going to turn our lives back over to Him. You know, the charge against the people of Judah was that they had just turned their backs on God and forgotten about God. But Jesus is the reason and the way that we can come back into that communion. And I just wanted to say this as we close. Uh, crying out to God and crying out to Jesus is the most joyous thing that you can do. Now, you think about crying as a negative thing, but there's also tears of joy. And so if you haven't cried out to Jesus, if you've never had that relationship with Him, that communion with Him, then cry out to Him today. And He knows the difference between fake and real tears. Cry out to Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, thank you so much for the message of Joel, which is sobering. The fact that you're a God that's holy, but you're also a God of mercy. You're a God of judgment, but you also give us every chance to repent and turn from our sins. Thank you so much for the grace that you've given us those of us who have trusted in Christ and have been born again. And again, I just, I just want to lift that up, God, that we would cry out to you this week, bring our problems to you, bring our aches and pains to you. God, if there's someone in our life that doesn't know you, that we would cry out for them. And thank you, God, that we don't need a temple, that we don't need some specific religious sacrifice, that we have the one and only sacrifice, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.